I prayed and I prayed and I prayed more than I ever have before that God would arrange certain things in my life to go a certain way, but he didn't do it. And now it's too late. Someone said this to me a few days ago with tears in her eyes. And I bet you have felt that way before. And then just a few days before that, another person confided in me and said something similar. He said, for years I have been praying for my son, that he would turn his life around, that he would start making better choices, that God would revive his spirit, do something. And as the years have gone by, I have only found one thing to be true. The more I pray, the worse things get for my son. Can you relate to this? And then a few weeks ago, I was reading a book by one of my favorite New Testament scholars, Dale Allison, who said in a vulnerable aside that he used to believe that God answered our prayers. But then a drunk driver slammed into the car of one of his dearest friends, Barbara, who was 16 weeks pregnant at the time. The accident gave her a traumatic head injury so that she was comatose at the scene. But despite the severity of her injuries, he said that he he still felt this confidence that she would eventually recover. And he felt this way because so many people were praying for her. Prayer chains were activated on her behalf. She was named in liturgical services across the country. Barbara was a lovely person with many friends, all of whom were daily interceding on her behalf and on behalf of her unborn son. He recalled thinking, we've got this covered. God cannot ignore all of these heartfelt pleas, especially as she also has two little children at home. God will not let her and her baby go away. But then after several weeks in the hospital, Barbara and her baby did go away. And with them, his confidence in prayer. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate people like these who wrestle with these sorts of questions with such raw honesty. To me, we have a lot to learn from folks like this. People who take their faith so seriously that they refuse to settle for any Christian cliche. That they refuse to play with words so as to wrap the harsh realities of life with some thin spiritual veneer. We need voices like these to keep ourselves honest. We need people who struggle with these questions so that we can take a closer look at our own assumptions about prayer. About, about what it is and, and how it works. So before I continue on with today's sermon, let me get this out in the open so that it's as clear as it can be. Your doubts are welcome here at All Saints. Your questions about God, even if they feel sacrilegious or out of place or lacking in faith, They are all signs of a genuine soul doing his or her best to journey with God. We need your questions and your doubts and struggles. But having said that, 
what does any of this have to do with our occasion for today? August 6th, the Feast of, trans, of the Transfiguration. Because at first glance, you know, this dramatic scene of Jesus on a mountaintop, wonderfully transfigured in raiment, white and glistening, as our colleague of the day puts it, conversing with these two towering figures of our faith, Moses and Elijah, once thought to be dead, but now apparently alive. Yes, this scene seems to have little, if anything, to do with our questions and struggles about prayer. However, if we take a closer look, we will discover that it actually does have something to say. We will discover that Luke does want us to know something about prayer. If only we would take a closer look at the prayer life of Jesus himself. I believe if we pay attention to what Luke is doing, how he's telling this story, no, all of our questions about prayer will not be answered, but some of our misguided assumptions about prayer might be reconfigured in a way that will ultimately help us. So let's begin by looking at how Luke introduces his account of the transfiguration in chapter 9, verse 28. Because he notes something that no other gospel author mentions. He says, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. Only Luke sets the transfiguration of Jesus in the context of prayer. And he mentions this not only once, but actually twice. In verse 29, Luke goes on, and, and while Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face changed. Luke wants us to know that the transfiguration occurs while Jesus is praying. Now, one might think that this is just a nice, you know, spiritual way to set the scene. And so we really shouldn't read too much into it. Well, except for the fact that Luke, and Luke alone, does this in other key places throughout his gospel account. Let's consider how Luke describes Jesus' baptism. It has a different twist than how Matthew, Mark, and John tell the story. Luke's version is short and sweet, and it mentions Jesus' baptism in the past tense, but then says that the voice from heaven is heard while Jesus is praying. Luke's account is so short that I can read it now in its entirety. This is chapter 3, verse 29. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized, past tense, and was now praying, the heaven was opened, and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, You are my Son, the Beloved, with whom I am well pleased. No other gospel writer mentions that Jesus is praying when this happens. So that both at his baptism and at his transfiguration, only Luke sets the scene by saying that Jesus is praying. Now, if you're familiar with Luke's gospel, then you know that Luke loves to highlight the prayer life of Jesus like no other gospel writer does. Especially at these key junctures in his ministry. And so another example after his baptism is when Jesus chooses his 12 disciples. I want you to listen again to how Luke introduces this story. 
Now, during those days, Jesus went out to the mountain to pray, and he spent the whole night in prayer to God, so that when day came, he called his disciples and chose 12 of them. No other gospel author mentions this long night of prayer before Jesus makes such a big decision. Let me give you another example. A few chapters later, when, when Peter makes his famous declaration that Jesus is the Christ, listen again to how Luke sets things up. He writes, Once, when Jesus was praying alone with only his disciples near him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say that I am? Which, of course, eventually leads to Peter's confession. But again, I want you to see that prayer is the catalyst here. My friends, I believe Luke is trying to teach us something. Something significant about the prayer life of Jesus. Something that keeps Jesus on track and moving in the right direction in accordance with his Father's will. And that something is this. His prayer posture. Jesus takes a posture toward prayer that is different than most Christians. For most Christians, our posture toward prayer is to view it as something like a power tool for getting what we want. That's why we like to talk a lot about the power of prayer. It's this tool that we can use to wake God up and get his attention so that he can spring into action and do exactly what we want him to do. Listen to the, the book of our prayers. God, give me a different job. God, make this sick person well. Bring my spouse back to me. Make these circumstances play out like I want them to. You see, we fervently pray for God to show up and do something, or we bitterly wonder why we've been abandoned by a God who promised to be with us. Now, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that we should never let our requests be known to God, as Paul commends in his letter to the Philippians. But I am saying that this should not be our primary prayer posture toward God. It shouldn't be our primary attitude when it comes to prayer. Because God is not our personal genie in a bottle. And prayer is not a power tool for getting what we want. Instead, let us look to the prayer life of Jesus. And if we look at the posture he took toward prayer, we will discover that for Jesus, prayer is not a power tool, but rather it is a a portal for paying attention. It's a portal for listening to God for how to live faithfully in line with his unfolding story. That, I believe, is what Luke is trying to highlight. That at each of these significant points in Jesus' life, they occur only as Jesus is prayerfully paying attention. Father, how can I be faithful to you in this moment and to your kingdom story? And so, at the beginning of his ministry, at his baptism, in prayer, Jesus is listening. And he hears the voice of his father confirming his identity as God's beloved son, the chosen one. 
both references to the Old Testament promise of a king, of a suffering servant even, who will give his life for the coming of God's kingdom. He's tuned in, right? And then a bit later, when Jesus chooses his 12 disciples, his 12 apostles, he spends an entire night in prayer listening, paying attention to his role as Messiah, as the one who will reconstitute the 12 tribes of Israel. And so he perceives that this is how he can be faithful in this moment in time. And so what does he do? He chooses 12 leaders for his movement, showing both its continuity with Israel's story, but also laying a foundation for a future community soon to be born, the church. Jesus, through prayer, is discerning his place in God's story. Because for Jesus, prayer is a portal for paying attention. And then, a little bit later, right in the middle of his kingdom activity, right, all this ministry, there's this, this buzz in the air about Jesus of Nazareth. That he's on to something, that, that there's something special about him, something special about what he's doing. And in the middle of all of this buzz, Jesus continues to pay attention in prayer. He's listening, which prompts him to enter into this conversation. So he, he asks his disciples, who do people say that I am? Which finally leads him to turn the question on them directly. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter famously responds, you are the Messiah, the long-awaited king of Israel. And it's at that moment when the ministry of Jesus takes this noticeable and dramatic turn. For in this moment, this is when Jesus begins to teach his disciples about what it truly means to be Israel's king. This is actually right before the transfiguration. And Jesus tells them after this famous declaration, you are the Christ, he says, yes, Peter, you're right. And the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. A pivotal moment in the story of Jesus discerned by him through prayer, right? And then finally for today's glorious occasion, Jesus again goes up on the mountain to pray. He's still doing his best to pay attention. Am I on the right track here? A suffering king? The call to take up one's cross? Father, show me. Is this how I am to be faithful to your kingdom story? And in the middle of that prayer, that's when all these illusions and connections from the Old Testament show up and appear in tangible and visible form. Dazzling white. A cloud falling upon them. A voice from heaven. And then to top it off, Moses and Elijah themselves. And what is Jesus speaking with them about? Nothing other than, quote, his departure. That's what Luke says, his departure. That to which Jesus has now turned his face, his journey to Jerusalem, and everything that awaits him there, his betrayal, his arrest, suffering and crucifixion, resurrection and ascension that is his departure that's what they're talking about and so as with his baptism jesus again receives confirmation yes jesus you are on the right track you are in line with the old testament story bringing it to its climax with your quote departure and all of this occurs because for jesus Prayer is not a power tool for getting what he wants, but a portal for paying attention. 
listening for how he can be faithful to the bigger story of God's kingdom come. That's what prayer is first and foremost for Jesus. Now, like I said earlier, this certainly doesn't answer every question that we have about the nature of prayer. But it does reconfigure some of our assumptions, doesn't it? I think it's fair to say that those mentioned at the beginning of my sermon held assumptions closer to a posture that says prayer is a power tool for control rather than a portal for paying attention. And so it makes me wonder, how might their outlook shift if they change their posture toward prayer? And again, I'm not saying that there isn't a place for intercession, far from it. I'm simply talking about an overall attitude toward the place and purpose of prayer in our lives. And I'm simply saying, look to Jesus, right? Look to Jesus. Is your prayer posture more about, God, about getting God to do your own bidding, or is it more about listening to God so that you might do His? And I ask of you, which of those looks more like Jesus? Is your prayer posture more about figuring out how God can fit into the story of your life? Or is it more about figuring out how your life can fit into the story of God? And then I ask again, which of these looks more like Jesus? Is your prayer posture more about asking God to bring things in your life under control? Lord, can't you put this under control? Or is it more about learning to be faithful to Jesus in the inevitable out-of-controlness that life brings. Which of these looks more like Jesus? My friends, if the transfiguration teaches us anything, it teaches us to look to Jesus, look to his life, look to his prayer life, look at how intent he was to prayerfully fit his life into the Father's story. How might then we do the same? How might you, even as you struggle with your questions about prayer, use prayer more to pay attention to how God might be calling you to serve in his kingdom story instead of some kind of a power tool to get God to do your own bidding? Look at your prayer life. Evaluate. What are some of the changes that you might make? And how might that change uh, your outlook in terms of what God is doing in your life? Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you have created us for relationship, to live our life in you and for you, to hear from you, to communicate with you, to develop a deep relationship with you because of your Son and through the Spirit. We pray that you might realign whatever assumptions are off when it comes to our posture of prayer. And we do pray that our posture, our overall attitude toward prayer would look more like Jesus who set aside time to pay attention, to listen, to see how our lives might be lived in faithfulness to Jesus instead of just trying to get you to do what we want. Will you help us? Have mercy upon us in this way, we pray. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.